0: He'd been doing this, two years of ministry that God had called him to, to live amongst those people, those homeless, those lost, that God had called him to minister to. What was different this morning was the cold. He could actually see his breath in the air, and when he sat up, his sleeping bag fell down around his waist, and he couldn't help but to pull that back up around himself, despite the cold. The cold. He shivered, and he he looked over to his right, and there lay Maggie and Ben. And they were still asleep, but huddled close together, trying to stay warm amidst the cold. They were young, and they were still in that early infatuation period of love, new love. Cal had known Ben for almost six months now, and when he had first met him, Ben had actually just been released from jail. On a charge of drug possession. And um, Ben, as you would expect to happen perhaps, because of his youth, because of his lack of experience in life, his lack of education, and most recently because of his drug charge, had been unable to find a job. And so Cal had come across him and found that he was panhandling at the time. Cal could could feel a a feeling of anger kind of rise up in him as he thought about this. He thought, didn't people understand what these sorts of of drug-related laws did to people? Didn't they understand how these destroyed people's lives? He had to suppress that anger. It seemed to Cal that most of his so-called brothers and sisters in Christ were more interested in condemning the downtrodden rather than to reach out to them in love. He felt that his fellow fellow followers of Christ maybe needed a little bit of a dose of reality. Rather than sitting there in their heated homes, looking at the world through their phones, he knew that most of these Christians had nicer accommodations for their Christmas decorations than most of the people he encountered every day. When Cal first met Ben, Ben took to him like a big brother. In fact, it was only a few short weeks later that Ben actually came to Christ, drawn by the love that he sensed from Cal and the radical nature of what it was to serve the homeless, giving up everything he had. Maggie had only been with them for a few weeks. At 16, she was kicked out of her parents' house, and after that, she spent her time going from place to place, never staying anywhere too long, doing what she could to make some money. She hadn't taken much of an interest in Cal, but she had taken an interest in Ben. And although Cal had welcomed her into his little community, as he did with everybody, he had warned Ben about getting wrapped up with a girl who was not a Christian. Yet despite these conversations, Cal had noticed that for the past several days in particular, there were very long periods of time that both of them were unaccounted for. And Cal suspected and figured it was probably the case that uh, Ben was trying to conceal the, the sexual nature of their relationship and how far things had really gone. But Cal didn't feel like he could really say anything about this, after all, Maggie wasn't a Christian And Ben, well, Ben was young, and he was falling into one of those temptations that so many men fall into. In fact, he himself, when he was younger, he had drifted off that way. Cal thought about Jesus, Jesus who said, do not judge, lest you be judged. He felt that if he judged in this way, he too would be accountable in the same manner. Cal heard a rustle to his left, where he saw Richard, who was starting a small fire. He had known Richard ever since he had taken to the streets. Richard was a bit of a lone wolf. He'd usually stay in the community for a few days, maybe even as much as a week, but then he'd go off somewhere not to be seen or heard from for several months on end. Richard, as far as Cal could tell, was a Christian, but Richard didn't like to talk about it very much. Unfortunately, he was an alcoholic who long ago had given up trying to battle with his addiction. From what Cal knew, Richard had been married. He had had a successful job, a wife, a child. But due due to some infidelity on the part of his wife, he had gone into a deep depression. And the result was he lost everything. Richard didn't seem to particularly like life on the street. But he never seemed to be able to pull himself together either. The homeless shelters, Christian or not, wouldn't take him because he wouldn't give up the alcohol. Cal thought this was ironic, given Jesus' nature of reaching out to the downtrodden and the outcast in his day, Jesus who had demolished those rules in the Jewish society that seemed to create classes of good and bad, rules that seemed to be favored over actually loving people. Yet Cal sighed, Pharisaism seemed to be alive and well today. Cal knew of Richard's strong dislike of these sorts of Christians. So when Richard would bring out the bottle of whatever he had and offered Cal a drink, Cal was a bit uneasy about it. But in the end, Cal decided that refusal would likely just alienate Richard. It would more likely cause him to just get up and leave. So instead, Cal would use a shared drink as a means of having a conversation with him about personal things, deep things, spiritual things. Again, he knew that his fellow Christians would look down on him for doing this. But once again, he felt that that was just their love of rules overshadowing their love for people. Cal stood up and shook his head. He couldn't waste time dwelling on the problems in the church. He rolled up his sleeping bag, put his few belongings into his pack, And as he did so, he prayed that God would give him a love and a desire and a passion to reach the lost, to help him to love the unlovable. He pulled out his Bible, walked over to Richard, and joined him by the fire. Perhaps in some way you identify with Cal, or perhaps you don't identify with him at all. And regardless of how you view him and his Christian walk, there are some admirable qualities in what he was doing. Many things are very admirable, but there are also some things that he was doing and how he was living out his walk that are disheartening. And we're going to get back to talking about Cal in just a few minutes here. When Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthian church, he was writing to a church that had many problems. And if you've been following us in Mission 119, Last week, we read through the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians all the way up to chapter 12. And then this week, we went into chapter 13, finished off the book of 1 Corinthians, and then went on to 2 Corinthians. And so today, we're going to be talking about most of the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you were to start reading 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 1 all the way through about chapter 14, you would read about a church, a church community that had strong divisions within it. Some of the people liked Paul's teachings. Maybe they liked his intellect. Maybe they liked his sound theological reasoning. Others liked what Peter had to say. Maybe they liked his emotion, his passion, his practical impulsivity. And still others, they liked Apollos. Maybe it was his charisma or his eloquence as a speaker. And these groups within the church were arguing with each other. They were denouncing each other, and even Paul himself, as each of these groups thought that their own particular theology, their own particular leader, their own particular theological application and spiritual gifts were the most important ones. This was a church community that was not dealing with the sexual sin that was inside of their church. Rather than being confrontational, They were basically ignoring it. Maybe they were afraid to confront people. Maybe they were embarrassed about being considered judgmental. Maybe they were caught up in sin themselves and didn't want to be held accountable. Regardless, their attitude was essentially one of live and let live. This was a church community in Corinth of rather selfish Christians who were looking to their own interests above the interests of others. The wealthy would leave the poor without food, They were suing each other as they felt that their own interests were being violated. The people who were less susceptible to temptation were flaunting their personal freedoms in front of those who were more susceptible to temptation. And as a result, they were causing them to stumble into sin. And these were people who were using their spiritual gifts to serve themselves rather than to serve the larger body of Christ. The Corinthian church had many, many problems. And Paul's letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians is a harsh letter of teaching and rebuke to try and shake the church into waking up to what is central of Christ's message. And this was vital not only to the Corinthian church of Paul's day, but it is vital to us today. Now for many of us, the passage we're going to read this morning is going to be very familiar Yet, despite its familiarity, it is very often misapplied, either through overpersonalization or by t- attaching a theological principle to it that really the passage has nothing to do with. So, please turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'm going to read through all of this chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that as you guide us through this passage this morning, Lord, you would teach us about your love and your truth. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Corinthians 13 is really the culmination of this letter, the culmination of Paul's teaching. As I already mentioned in the first 12 chapters, these were largely describing and pointing out problems with the theology and particularly the practice in the Corinthian church. Chapter 12 deals with infighting that was going on in the church with regard to spiritual gifts. And chapter 13, right after that, clearly states that without all these spiritual gifts, or even despite having all these spiritual gifts, without love, the spiritual gifts are essentially useless. And since chapters 1 through 12 have been detailing all of these ways that the Corinthian church was failing at loving each other, This was really the true and central problem that needed to be addressed by Paul. The Corinthian Christians simply did not love each other the way they should be loving each other. So let's start to break this down a little bit. We'll go to the beginning of of, 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse one. I'm just gonna read this again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So the Corinthian church had been arguing about spiritual gifts. So Paul makes mention of some of these. He's pretty much saying, look, I could have the ability to speak. I could be an amazing speaker. I could speak in all of these tongues, amazingly gifted. I could be an amazing prophet, knowing everything that is unknown. I could have the faith that Jesus spoke about, to even be able to move mountains. He says, look, I could give away everything I have, even my own life, to be burned. I could die. But even if he does all of these things, but doesn't do them out of love for God or others, essentially they're worthless. So he's showing a very stark contrast here showing how important love is in the Christian's life. And this would have been no surprise to Paul's readers, okay? Nor should it be a surprise to us. After all, what was it that Jesus said the most important commandments were? In Matthew 22, Jesus, when he was asked about this, said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said that on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So to love God and to love neighbor are the central two commandments upon which Christianity is found. That is the foundation. So of course, if someone has amazing spiritual gifts, but they don't use them to love God or love other people, they're missing the main point. And then Paul goes on in verse 4, to that all too familiar passage. He says, "'Love is patient and kind. "'Love does not envy or boast. "'It is not arrogant or rude. "'It does not insist on its own way. "'It is not irritable or resentful. "'It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, "'but rejoices in truth. "'Love bears all things, "'believes all things, "'hopes all things, "'endures all things. "'Love never ends.'" And often these verses are quoted at weddings to describe what love should look like between a husband and a wife. And while that is true, that's not really Paul's intent in this passage. Paul was saying, first off, that we need to have love. If we don't have love, then then nothing else really matters. And we are gonna know love when we see it because this is what love looks like. This is what this description is. Now, for most of us, this list makes sense. Love is patient and kind. Sure. Love doesn't envy or boast, because otherwise that would imply that there's some sort of a hidden pride or selfish motives. Love is not arrogant or rude. Yep, makes sense. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Again, all of this stuff makes sense. A truly selfless love would not behave in those ways. But then it says, love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love uh, endures all things. What does that mean? Does that mean that love bears and endures abuse? Or believes known liars? Or hopes that bad ideas are going to come to happen? Well, no. it's, It's actually simpler than that. It simply means that you know if you actually love someone with God's love, with this 1 Corinthians 13 love, If a person was to take advantage of you in some way, and despite the pain, you still love them. It means that despite the lies and scams you may be given, with true love, you still hope for the best and believe the best for a person. Love is not simply an emotion or a feeling okay, that we are generating in ourselves. And it's also not improper actions. Love does not mean be a doormat. It does not mean that you have to let yourself be scammed or abused. It does not mean that if you've been subjected to some sort of domestic abuse or rape, you should just let those things happen or even stay in those situations. However, Jesus is our example in this. Jesus was not a doormat, okay, but he came as a servant and ultimately gave up his life for all of humanity. That's not a doormat. That's somebody we would call a hero. Okay, that is what this love looks like. Despite the abuse that Jesus endured, he still loves us and provides for us. This is the love that Paul is speaking about, which again is described in this section of 1 Corinthians 13. This type of love, the love of God, is not a loving feeling, okay? It is the way God and we should respond despite our feelings and despite our circumstances. And this passage talks about what this looks like. If we were to write somebody off or decide that they are unlovable for one reason or another, then we never really had a God-centered love for them because God's love is not conditional on behavior or circumstances. God's love never ends. Then we continue reading in verse 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known." Now this is probably the most commonly misapplied portion in this chapter. It's used to justify and conclude all sorts of things unrelated to what Paul is actually talking about. And although these verses may seem confusing or out of place, I think Paul's intent is actually fairly straightforward here. Paul's saying prophecies, tongues, and knowledge will all pass away or cease. And the phrase similar to it will pass away, when it says that in there, comes from a Greek word which can also be translated as to render useless or be unproductive. And we see this also used in Romans 6.6. So all these passages that I've underlined, this is all the same Greek word, even though we see it as several words in English. So in Romans 6.6, it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So here we see that when we become Christians, our old way of being is, is killed or is crucified so that sin might be, and the phrase here is, again, brought to nothing, so that we are not enslaved to sin. Now, although we may not be enslaved to sin, that does not mean that sin ceases to exist, okay? It, it It just no longer impacts us in the the same way as it would prior to us being Christians. So there's a breadth of possible meaning here when we look at 1 Corinthians 13 to try and understand what Paul is saying. In short, it means that we could correctly interpret this passage in verse 8 to be saying prophecies, tongues, and knowledge will either, we couldn't understand as to cease to exist entirely, like if we stop sinning, then that stops completely, or we could understand them as simply having a diminished significance or effect, like the power of sin in our lives. Again, the sin doesn't disappear, but there's a diminished impact on our lives if we are a follower of Christ. But it's important to note that regardless of which way you would translate and understand the verse, the context of the passage is speaking of the role of these gifts in an individual Christian's life. And we know this because of the next several verses. But what I want to be clear about here is this is not Paul giving a teaching about a global understanding of how the role of spiritual gifts work throughout the history of the church. Okay? This is, again, about an individual Christian's walk and their relationship with the gifts. So looking at verses 9 and 10, For we know in part, and we prophecy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Paul is suggesting that right now, we use the gifts of prophecy or knowledge, and our use of them is somehow incomplete. And he compares what is imperfect, incomplete, or partial with what is complete and perfect. And the Greek word here, and I have it highlighted again on on the screen for you, can also be translated as mature or finished. So That word perfect is used in Ephesians 4, as the word mature, and I'm just going to read this passage. It says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, so perfect, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we see the same word again used by Jesus, Matthew five forty-eight starting in verse 43 to just give a little bit of context here. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You, therefore, must be perfect. Again, the same word is mature, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the perfect being spoken of in 1 Corinthians in verse 10 is actually a level of maturity and completeness that is expected of the Christian even if it is never quite attainable this side of heaven. So verses eight through 10 are actually saying that when we reach full maturity in Christ, when we reach this perfection, these other spiritual gifts will either cease altogether or have a diminished significance. And I would tend to favor that latter interpretation of a diminished significance and we'll get to, to why I think that in a minute here. So reading uh, on in verses 11 and 12, it says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For now, for I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So a child is immature where a man is mature. The child engages in things that a child engages in. But a man does not focus on those things. Those things that a child engages in, playing, whatever it is, they don't cease to exist, but they are much less significant to a grown adult. And this is similar to how we might see someone's face in a reflection or in a mirror. Mirror, for example, like in in a dark room, seeing them in a reflection or in a mirror does not compare with seeing them face to face. We have little need of a mirror if we were able to see somebody face to face. But again, that doesn't require that mirrors cease to exist. So for this reason, I believe that Paul is saying that there will be a point when these gifts, um, not, not so much that there will be a point that these gifts cease to exist, but rather saying that there will be a point when they will have little or less comparative significance for a mature believer, and particularly, and this is the important part, particularly when compared to the love of god and the love of neighbor so even though we operate in the spiritual gifts that are incomplete in some way eventually we will operate in them we will operate in completeness when we've reached a full maturity in christ so again this part of first corinthians is simply talking about the importance of spiritual gifts in the life of a believer who has not reached full spiritual maturity compared to a believer who has reached full maturity and completeness. But it's important to note here that even Paul says he himself has not reached that level of spiritual maturity. And as we've read already in Matthew, this level of spiritual maturity, Jesus is comparing to the perfection of God himself. Now, I want to be very clear, lest we draw incorrect conclusions, that Paul is not in any way saying that the gifts are not important. If we were to look ahead to chapter 14, Paul's very clear to say we should all be eagerly seeking after the gifts. And he's explaining how they are there and they are vital to building up the body of Christ. What Paul is getting at in chapter 13 is that spiritual maturity is not measured by the number of spiritual gifts a Christian has or by how well they use them. Spiritual maturity is measured by how we love each other with this 1 Corinthians 13 love. The spiritual gifts will one day have little importance compared to this love because this love never ends. So how does this all relate back to Cal, who we talked about in the beginning? Now, Cal is a polarizing sort of person. He's the type of Christian that other Christians either love or they hate. He's the type of Christians that other Christians either want to be like or want to be nothing like. Now, Cal had a very powerful ministry to the homeless. Like Jesus, he entered into the world of those he sought to reach. He loved them in a very real, self-sacrificial way. But like individuals in the church in Corinth and in the church today, he thought that his own spiritual giftings and inclinations towards the homeless and towards poverty were the best and right way of doing things, and he actually was looking down on other Christians who were not doing things in the same sort of way. Cal was divisive in the body of Christ. He was divisive in the church. Cal really wanted to love those in his community. He wanted to show them love like Jesus loved. And much of his radical example should be admired and even followed. But he didn't seem to be able to confront sin how, how Jesus did. In fact, he excused it not only in the, the name of love, but perhaps also out of a fear that his own sin might be brought to light. The Corinthian church was doing the same thing when they did not lovingly confront sin in their community. They did not lovingly confront the sin that was happening amongst people who were not married, yet they were having sexual relations. Cal thought that Jesus said that his followers should not judge But to be blunt, that is a lazy biblical interpretation, and it's not what Jesus meant. But it's what our culture says that Christians should say. It's what our culture says that Christians should think. And to not judge, to be honest, is a lot easier for us. Cal, like us all too often, was not protecting his flock from sin. Cal's desire to be amongst the outcasts and the downtrodden so that they felt loved and welcomed is to be celebrated. But when we make ourselves so similar to the world that we are no longer distinguishable from it, it defeats the point, especially if our actions are clearly causing others to stumble into sin themselves. In Cal's case, he was joining Richard in drinking out of a love for him, and perhaps this was not the wisest choice, but his heart really was in the right place and and should at least be commended for that. The Christians in the Corinthian church were engaging in their liberties to eat meat sacrificed to idols simply because they were free to do so. And in their freedoms, they were causing their brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble into sin. When we look to ourselves first in this manner and care little for the consequences of our actions on others, this is not love. I told the story of Cal not to imply that he is a terrible Christian. In fact, I think that he has an amazing story, and there's much in his walk that I'd be envious of. What I'm showing through Cal is that perhaps we can see in ourselves and in our church at New Life Fellowship is that there is this habit of raising up certain spiritual gifts or callings above others. And if we are doing that, we are not yet the perfect that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10. If we are overlooking sin either in our own lives or in the lives of our brothers and sisters, rather than coming to them in love and humility as a part of a desire to restore them in their walk to Christ, then we are not yet perfect as Jesus calls us to be perfect. If we indulge our freedoms with little thought of the spiritual damage that causes to others, we are still spiritual children and have much growth to do before we reach spiritual maturity. In short, Cal, like all of us, does not exemplify the greatest commandments that Jesus calls us to. We do not express the perfect and unconditional love for either God or our neighbor. Now, I don't think that that is really news for us, okay? Of course, we all know that we don't perfectly and unconditionally love God or love our neighbor, But see, this is the beauty of 1 Corinthians 13 because while we know this to be true, it's like we forget on some level and the next thing you know, we're playing the hierarchy games with sin or whatever else it is in our lives. Teachings, spiritual giftings, callings, whatever it is, we're playing this hierarchy game in the church. 1 Corinthians 13 is sort of a sobering self-test. We can compare our behavior or our thoughts about a particular thing to what God has said love actually looks like. Are we thinking about things as immature Christians or as mature Christians should be looking at things? For example, let's say you're shopping, okay, and you've made it to the checkout line and the the cashier is new and as a result is taking a long time to check out. And the next thing you know, at least in your head, you're finding that you're throwing insults at them or at the management because of how slow this process is taking. Well, if you're doing that, it's very clear that you do not love them with a First Corinthians 13 love. Or if you read a post on social media or on the news, some sort of opinion that is very much opposite of your own and the next thing you know, you're, you're bad-mouthing the people who make that, who had that opinion to everyone you know, well, it's clear then that you do not love them with a First Corinthians 13 love. An example in the church here, if you or I lift up Pastor Nathan's musical worship leadership, for example, while knocking down Pastor Corey's, or we lift up Pastor Corey's preaching while knocking down Pastor Nathan's, well, this tells us something about our love and spiritual maturity. Of course, we can have preferences for musical worship or preaching, but if our pastors are earnestly and properly following God's lead in their lives, you or me badmouthing their abilities is really no better than what the Corinthian church was doing between Paul and Peter and Apollos. We can look at this as a whole church context. If New Life Fellowship was to start boasting about how the Holy Spirit exhibited prophecy and worship and preaching in our services, but then we turned around and we belittle other congregations or people who don't do things the same way we do, then we will be demonstrating that as a congregation, we lack that most important indicator of what true spiritual maturity is, that 1 Corinthians 13 love. The marks of a mature Christian or a mature congregation are measured by how well they love. Are we kind? Are we arrogant? Do we rejoice in wrongdoing if it benefits us? Do we love despite the difficulties that may be brought to us by others? Do we hope for the best for other people who are very different for us? Can we say that our love never ends? Let's pray. Lord, we know that you call us to love. We know that you call us to love with a love that really can only come from you working through us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, we know that So many times we rebel against what that love looks like in action. So God, we just pray that you would change our hearts. Help us to love in this way. Help us to be sober minded and to be conscious of these temptations and these paths and these selfish ways that we so often go down. Transform us, Lord. Help us to become spiritually mature in that most important way, that most important of the spiritual fruits, Lord, that being love, your love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for being here this morning. You are dismissed. Go and be the church.